0: Christmas Revisited. Um, I guess it feels like that really, doesn't it? It's, uh, yeah, it's here again and there's lots of things which are very much here again about Christmas and I suppose for many of us that here-again feeling about Christmas, we can apply, as we've just prayed, to the Bible. It's a particular part of the Bible which really, even in, even in our generation today, where if we took, our, took ourselves back 50 or 100 years, there would be far, far more understanding of the basic Bible story even amongst people who had no connection whatsoever to church. There would be at least an understanding of the basic milestones of what the Bible story is telling us. There would be people who would know, even though they might not believe it. They might not believe it, but they would still be able to say, I can give you a journey through what the Bible tells us. That's the way it was. We're not living in that particular uh, world now, certainly not in this part of the world. Interestingly, there are are still parts of the world that do enjoy that kind of situation. If enjoy is the right word because one of the dangers is that we can become complacent. Uh, so there is There are parts of the world that are enjoying that. Interestingly, there are parts of the world that in the past have not enjoyed it and are now beginning to enjoy it. So if you went to parts of China, you would find now that there are massive population groups who would know the basic story of the Bible and yet a century ago it would have been completely unknown. It's quite remarkable what's going on in terms of the way the message of the Bible is being spread through the world. And yet we're here today, aren't we? We're in Castleford in Yorkshire in 2012 and the reality is that the, the Christmas story is just about the only thing which remains some level of connection with the world in which we live, that we have at least some understanding on a wider basis uh, one of the dangers that w- if, we, if we are regularly coming along to the church, if we are a believer in Jesus Christ, one of the dangers that we have is that we can assume too much. We can think that there is more understanding in the wider uh, society that we live than there actually is. And so for us, I don't think it's a bad thing for us to go back and to remind ourselves at this point in time to do this, Christmas revisited. I say that because the the, the opposing factor to that Christmas, I'm going to win. I've got the microphone. <laughs> the opposing factor to that um, Christmas story from the Bible is the whole uh, society Christmas stuff. So we have that genius advert. Which is on at the moment, Um, the John Lewis advert. uh, If you've seen it, the Snowman and uh, the Frankie Goes to Hollywood, Power of Love. Single, which is now um, it's a guaranteed Christmas hit, isn't it? Because it's been used in an advert. That's a big kind of factor for people. What's Christmas marked by? It's marked by the John Lewis advert, or it's marked by the build-up to uh, planning our holidays, or it's marked with the build-up to the stress and the strain of trying to work out uh, who you're going to buy presents for, who you're not going to buy presents for, who's meal, is who's going to be looking after the meal this year, all of that kind of thing is the usual stuff that people have filled ourselves up with in in terms of the Christmas. I want to look at the Christmas story, at least this afternoon, from three perspectives which I think we can see from this particular part of the, the Bible. The first is this, its origin is in history. The second is that it opens a window, and the third is that it brings hope. There's the three ways in which we're going to look at the Christmas story this afternoon. The first is, its origin is in history. Before we even turn to this particular section, we remind ourselves of what the storyline of the Bible is. We've got the Old Testament and then we come to the New Testament, which begins with four books. Uh, If you're not familiar with the Bible, the Bible is made up of 66 books. Uh, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. The, the, The split between the two is Jesus. Jesus is the central moment in the Bible story, and He is also the moment that separates the Old Testament from the New Testament. The New Testament, those first four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are the stories of the life of Jesus. Listen how each one of them starts. This is, the gene- this is Matthew. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's how Matthew starts his gospel. He's saying, I want to tell you about Jesus, and the way that I'm going to begin telling you about Jesus is to go back and talk about the whole of his family line. Here's the genealogy. This is, if you like, the family tree of this man, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus, the carpenter's son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the promised one. That's what it's about. It's about a man who has a genealogy who actually, therefore, exists in history. That's what Matthew is beginning to tell the story through that way. He's saying, Look at look, this is ha- this is his family line. This is a historical event. Mark begins his story the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And from that springboard, he goes on to give a whole uh, layer upon layer upon layer upon layer of description of the life of Jesus. Now, interestingly, the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke and John, uh, they don't really tell us a great deal about... They tell us what Jesus taught... They used a lot of Jesus' words, but they don't explain much of the implications of what he taught. That happens as we follow on through the rest of the Bible. What the first three Gospels particularly are doing is they are telling us about the historical life of Jesus. Luke begins, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. That's how Luke begins his. He says, there's many people who've written about what happened, and I'm doing the same. He's writing to a man called Theophilus. Theophilus is uh, an eminent man, and he's writing this account where he's, he's laying a stake in the ground and saying, this is about the historical Jesus. John begins slightly different, and yet the same kind of idea. John begins, in the beginning was the word Now, if we want to understand what John is saying, just for now, we can replace the word, Word, with Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John begins it by saying, let's put the word Jesus in place of the word, Word. He's saying, in the beginning was Jesus. And Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. And then he goes on to describe the events that... um, or the, the the immediate events of a man called John the Baptist who was promised as the immediate prophet proclaiming the coming of this Jesus, somebody that he's reflecting back into the Old Testament saying this is going to happen. This is really important for us because very often when we think about the Christmas message we can get we can get kind of Disappear off into all kinds of sorts of philosophical ideas, spiritual teaching. And one of the important aspects that we start our basis for the message of the Bible is that we are looking at a historical event. Things that happened. I would suggest to you that that, therefore, marks the message of the Bible, marks the Christian faith as something significantly different from most religions in the world. There are religions in the world which are, if you like, offshoots of the Christian faith. But in terms of the major world religions, one of the things that we see here is that this is rooted in the historical life. It is not a philosophical teaching It's not kind of spiritual ideas. It begins in history. Let's have a look at how this particular uh, incident begins in history. Christmas begins like this. Well, it doesn't quite begin like this, but we're going to break into the story and begin it like this. There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night no matter how you put it, no matter how you look at it, that is a historical event, isn't it? Whether we believe it happened or not is a separate issue. That is a historical event. We have got an account recorded here of an event which took place, which was a group of shepherds, ordinary men who were out in the fields, outside of the town of Bethlehem, at night, watching sheep. That would be the equivalent to many of our ordinary jobs of today. That's the kind of historical location that Luke is putting this in. He's saying this, this actually occurred amongst ordinary working guys and girls, ordinary people. They were going about their day-to-day business. They were doing ordinary stuff. It wasn't as though the Christmas message came to the hyper-religious. It wasn't as though the Christmas message came to somebody who was hidden away in some kind of spiritual um, monastic kind of existence, some kind of trance-like state, It came to ordinary people who were doing their ordinary stuff. I don't know what the equivalent to being out in the fields watching uh, sheep at night is today. I guess we do have shepherds. I'd I'd be surprised if there are any here this afternoon. Uh, If there are, I'd love to chat to you afterwards and find out where you're keeping sheep locally. Um, but I'm, I would be surprised if there are any shepherds. Maybe some of you have had that kind of experience in the... in, in the, I was going to say a past life. That sounds a strange thing to say. In, in, in years gone by, maybe that's something that you've done. I don't know. Working a night shift in the factory. Uh, working on security overlooking the car park or the office block of a night time. Just a group of guys who are going about their ordinary business. Ordinary stuff. That, in a way, if, if we say that the Gospels are, and the message of the Bible is this big picture, that it's ordinary life, this locates it day-to-day ordinary, doesn't it? I, what does that say to you and to me? I think it says a number of things. The first thing I think it says is this. I think it tells us that the God of the Bible is interested in engaging with ordinary you and me. Ordinary you and me. Not people who are on some sort of spiritual dimension. Not people who are hyper-academic. Not people who are super intelligent, ordinary people. The God of the Bible locates the beginning of one of the most, well, the most critical part of the whole of the storyline with ordinary you and me going about day-to-day life. The second thing I think it says to us, is that in that ordinariness, in that ordinary life, there is the potential, there is always the possibility for something spiritually dramatic to take place. And I would say that that continues today. I am not suggesting therefore that all of us could be expecting that maybe through this week while we're doing a night shift or whatever it might be, suddenly the sky is going to open and there's going to be a plethora of angels appearing. What I am saying is that for every one of us, the spiritual, something more than the now, can break into our existence at surprising moments. That happens. It happens in our experiences. We suddenly realize when we don't expect it that we are thinking about really deep, really significant, God-ordained issues in life and we never had that on the agenda. Have you experienced that? Have you experienced that moment when you are almost shaken Because you realize the significance of what is going through your mind, going through your thoughts, going through your emotions at this point in time is not related to something as mundane as keeping sheep or looking over the car park or whatever it might be. But it has eternal significance. Something massive breaks in. That's what we're like as people. We're spiritual people. And we have the potential for that to happen at the most extraordinary of times. So the first thing that we see is that the Christian message has its origins in history. It is real events. The second thing we see here is it opens a window. Look at how it continues, verse 9. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. I would be, I would be absolutely quivering like a little baby wreck if that happened to me at night time out in the mountains. Uh, I remember there was a a few years ago, probably during the 1980s, there was one of those historical big storms with massive wind kind of swept through. Um, I can't remember exactly which year it was. It would be something like about 86, 87. Um, Me and a a mate of mine, we were uh, climbing climbing Scarfell Pike out in the Lake District. And we were uh, halfway up the mountain. We decided to camp out for the night. We had a tent with us. And uh, I remember uh, the wind was beginning to pick up as we pitched the tent. uh, And then halfway through the night, this wind came through and it literally took the tent to bits. The poles snapped while we were lying in this tent. We spent the rest of the night grabbing hold of the tent and dragging it around us and just trying to keep ourselves out of the wind and out of the rain and literally surviving. I'll be honest, for all of the kind of macho talk afterwards, right then, I was scared. And that was something normal. That was just wind. But when it's dark, when there's just a couple of you out on a mountain, it's a scary experience. What imag- Imagine what you might feel if suddenly something supernatural happens and the heavens open and you hear voices and sounds and see things that you have never believed possible. That's what happens to these guys. Now that makes huge demands of us today, doesn't it? Because we have... A kind of cutesified view of this event. For all it is lovely and cute to kind of have the idea of the the little angel with the tinsel halo that stands on the top of the school desk and sings the solo during the nativity. For all that we have that in our minds, and it is you know it is a cute, lovely thing to see. That is not what this is about. These guys are scared. Because what breaks in is a realization of something greater than what we see. And that's the demand that this makes of us. It made this demand of them then. It makes the same demand of us today. What do we believe in? What exists? What exists? Is the only thing that exists what we can see, what we can touch, what we can feel, what we can measure? That's one view. I recognize that view. I see and respect people who hold that view for all sorts of reasons. I don't believe that myself. I don't believe that it is reasonable to contain all that we we understand, all that we believe in, as only the things that are measurable. There is something that is greater in the human experience, in the human knowledge, and therefore I would suggest something which is outside of visibility and yet exists. I think it was C.S. Lewis described it, a great author of the Narnia books, he described it as a consciousness of the other. That's something outside of us, a spiritual dimension. So I would suggest that this moment makes that demand of us. That's what's going on for these guys. They're out looking after sheep and suddenly there is a window that opens up to the existence of a spiritual dimension which they were previously not aware of. Something of reality that they had not previously observed. There is a spiritual dimension that we do not see. We can can be opposed to that. We can be skeptical, we can say that I believe that the only things that exist are the things that I can see. I think the problem with that is that our humanity has a deep empathy, a deep consciousness, a deep desire actually for there to be something more than just what we see. We cannot deny that every culture throughout the history of the world, in pockets of that culture, have clung on to, have recognized that there is more than that which we see alone. There is something written into the human dynamic that demands that there is something more. So I would suggest to you, if you are skeptical regards to the idea that there is the something more then I would say this is just a manifestation of what humanity might be saying again and again. I would love to chat at the end if that's something that you're you're thinking through and you're actually holding on to that. I'd love to talk about that. I want to make myself open for that. The second is that we could be agnostic towards it. We could say, well, actually, you know, I think there is something more. I believe that there is. I've ch- I, I don't think there are that many people, actually, who don't believe in something more. As, as I chat to people today, I find that most people say, well, okay, if, when push comes to shove, I believe that there's probably something more. I might not believe the Bible, but I believe that there's something more. What this demands of us is that we cannot just leave it at that. We can't. There are events in the history of this world that demand that we investigate it, demand that we look at it, demand that we consider it, demand that we say, well, what is this saying about the other, about the something more? That's what happened, I would suggest, to these guys. They were confronted with with something which was so big that they had no choice but to respond to. Maybe you've reached the point where you are so conscious that there is something more and you know that you have to look at it. The third is that we can be, yeah, we can be spiritual believers. Which one of those spiritual ideas, which one of those spiritual thoughts, firstly, is actually the true one? Which is the true spiritual reality? Because right at this point in time in our society, there are hundreds of spiritual ideas kicking around. Which one is the true one? And therefore, which one is authoritative? Which one can make demands of us? Which one says something to us? What do we see here? What do we see laid out for us in the Bible as we observe this particular moment, is that we see the God of the Bible making connection with this world. That's what we see. Supremely powerful. Supremely authoritative. God making connection, preparing for God present. Communicating God, present. Why do we have the word Christmas? Why is it Christmas? Christ, mass. Present, physical. Christ in physical form. That's what it's saying. Christ, that's an interesting word. It's a word which means... It's the Greek word really for the Hebrew word Messiah. The one that has been promised right the way through the Old Testament. What the word is saying is it is Christ present with us. That's an awesome claim. It's saying God present in the world. And God makes known of that presence in the world by this particular event. Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will bring great joy for all people. Today in the town of David, a Saviour has been born to you. He is the Messiah, or the Christ. He is the Messiah, the Lord, God in the world. That's the declaration, that's the proclamation, that's the window that opens up and makes a supreme statement. God making a statement to the world by his spokespeople, a host of angels. I don't know what angels look like. I don't know what they sound like, but it's scary stuff. Saying God has come into the world. So we've got an origin in history. We see a window open and thirdly, we see hope in the world. That's what that verse says. Do not be afraid. This is good news. It will bring great joy because today in the town of David, which is Bethlehem, a Saviour has been born to you. A Saviour. A Saviour. That word really makes me think in our world today. I think as I look around... Our world is faced with a mass of issues, economic issues, problems in the Eurozone, problems with global poverty, problems with the distribution of wealth. That's just if we look at economics. If we look at ecological issues, we've got problems of global warming. We've got problems of a growing human population. We've got problems of the distribution of food. If we look at health, we've got the challenge of AIDS. We've got the fears of a flu pandemic, which we feel could break out at any moment in time. We have superbugs, which we are fighting against, even in the most advanced of societies. With regards to people, we have racism, we have addictions, we have wars, we have problems. What is a human response? We need to solve those problems, don't we? We need to solve them. We need to find ways. The whole of our political infrastructure is designed to try to solve these problems. And it's not wrong to be looking to solve the problems. But the reality is that it don't, we don't need solving. We need saving. That's the issue, because actually all of these problems are not the root cause, they're the symptoms of the problem. If you went to the wrong kind of medical advice with a certain condition, they might say, take this box of sticking plasters. And every time you see that mark on your arm, put another sticking plaster over it. Just keep on going. Just keep on going. As soon as you see it break out, just put another sticking plaster over it. If you put the sticking plaster over it, you won't be able to see the problem. You'll be fine. That's a bit like solving the problems. The reality is that the issue is deeper. The issue is that we have broken relationship with the God of the Bible. We have offended Him. We have rebelled against Him. We have—the uh, Bible uses the word—we have sinned against Him. The, what does that mean? The, actually, the word "sin" means uh, missing the mark. It's an archery term. It's, it's that's a word that was used in in medieval. Writing apparently you miss the mark. It's a word that you you aim at the target, you miss the mark. The reality is that we don't try and miss the mark, we deliberately fire the arrows in the opposite direction and miss the mark. We deliberately go in opposition to the way that God would have us live. And the result of that is the crisis and the catastrophe of the world in which we live. And this message says there is great news breaking into the world. God present. Not to solve, but to save. Because the reality is, as Jesus comes into the world, as we see it opened out, through the rest of the New Testament is his desire is to become present to save a people so that there can be ultimately an eternal world where all of the issues are solved but do you see the way the pattern works saved first so that the issues can be solved and when we carry on trying to do all the solving without resolving the need to be saved, we've got a problem. <laughs> and the great news is that Jesus coming into the world is the Savior, the saving one, somebody to save, somebody to bring hope by saving us. That's great news But isn't it interesting? The only way that God could save us is by being with us. That's the way it seems, doesn't it? He's been promising a Savior right the way through the Old Testament, but the only way that that was worked out was by coming to us, by abiding with us by making His presence with us. Well, at least that's the way God has designed for it to be. I don't know whether in His mind He could have worked out a different way to save a people He could have zapped us from heaven one by one without any intervention. He could have maybe done that. But the reality is he designed this wonderful, beautiful, amazing, dramatic plan of salvation which he conceived before he even made the world. And he said, the way that I'm going to do it is by coming into that world and dying on a cross. And the only way that I can do it is by coming into the world in the first place. By abiding with a people that need me what great news that is that's why it's called good news because god comes it's what we need more than anything else we need god with us more than anything we need for god to abide with us to spend time with us, to engage with us, to do things so that we can be saved. Because the reality is that we're helpless. Christmas is about that. It's about the beginning of that process. It's about God coming into the world and abiding with a people so that we might be saved. That's why it's good news, and that's why it couldn't have happened if he didn't come into this world.